Your Bibles, once you found that, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 1 down through verse 8 together. We'll read them responsibly, and uh, we'll, uh, I'll begin in verse 1, and then we'll read uh, together verses 2, 4, 6, and 8. The Bible says there, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though John himself baptized not, but his disciples, again, let's do verse 2 together. Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. We're going to preach another sermon that's an installment inside of our theme for the year, Lift Him Up. Uh, this is a sub-series that we're doing underneath this, Lift Him Up. And the sub-series is Engage. We're talking about engaging others with the gospel of Jesus, the way Jesus engaged others during his time and more specifically today, we're going to be looking at this idea of engaging the sinner. Engaging the sinner. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today you'd help uh, us to understand the Word of God. I pray that it would be uh, held up and explained well. Lord, uh, help me to uh, preach your Word with power and authority. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that came into our church... Uh, that does not know salvation, that does not know that uh, when they die that they will spend eternity in heaven. God, may they leave here today uh, with that changed. May they know. May they know that heaven is their home. God, help us. Help us to study your word, understand your word. And Lord, I pray you'd help me as I preach your word. Uh, Lord, would you uh, use my lips to say what you want to say. And then, Lord, may the ears of those that listen uh, gather together everything that needs to be heard. Lord, may we leave here changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This morning we're going to look at our second installment in our series, Engage. And God has given each of us that are alive in Christ a commission to replicate our faith into the hearts and lives of others. It's something God has commanded us to do. He's commissioned us to do that. And if you are here today and you are living and breathing air, and you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, then you fall underneath that list of those that have been commissioned to do this. All year long, we've been looking at this idea of lifting up Christ. And we we have talked all year long about how our lifestyle needs to lift up Christ. Our lifestyle needs to elevate Christ. We need to mimic the way that Christ lived in that the way we live. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, or which is also in Christ Jesus. And we've talked about various things that Christ did. We've talked about His character. We've talked about His compassion. We've talked about His characteristics. We've talked about His Church and how important those things are. We have attempted to, through preaching and admonishing, lift up Christ through our lifestyle. But I'm here today to tell you that while we should lift up Christ with our lifestyle, we also need to learn how to lift up Christ through our language. Our language. His name, His good news must be on our tongue 
constantly. His, uh, his, um, uh, uh, his blessings that He's given us ought to be talked about regularly. Our language, our language. We need to lift up Christ through our language. Now, how do you do that? How do you lift up Christ through your language unless you're going to be willing to engage others with that? I am, um, I am blown away at how easy it is for people to take God's name in vain. Just blown away. People throw God's name around in an empty, vain way all the time. And this is supposed to be a country, or it is a country that's built on Judeo-Christian ethics, right? Uh, where uh, we come from people of the Bible. Our, our founders either believed in the Bible or at least respected those that believed in the Bible. And no one back then took God's name in vain. But as God has been washed out of our society... People just boldly throw out God's name in vain all the time. Every other ex, ex, uh, explicit is, oh my, and they take God's name in vain. Let's not forget in the Ten Commandments, we're commanded not to do that. Now, I preach about that often, and I'm, I'm making a larger point here. If the world can be so bold as to engage Christians with God's name in a vain way, then why can't Christians be bold to engage the lost with God's name in a good way? Does that make sense? This morning, if the world can throw God's name around and even attach curse words to it and, and drag it through the mud, why do we have such a hard time elevating it and talking about it in a positive way? It ought to be that, look, uh, we are outdoing them with our boldness to engage the lost with how good that our God is and how good God's Son is today. I'm here today to tell you that it is our place, it is our duty, it is our responsibility to lift up Christ through our language. Now, how do people receive that? How do people receive that? Let me uh, personally testify, if I could here. I um, uh, was raised in a uh, Christian home. I was sharing, uh, I spoke at that conference yesterday, and I was sharing with everyone. Uh, um, uh, I told people, I said, I go to stores around here, and, and everyone asks me if I'm from the South. And then I go to a store in the south and everyone asks me if I'm from the north. And so I'm a man without a land. Amen? And um, um, I, I told them that uh, I'm not a military brat. You know, kids are raised in a military family. They're called military brats. I'm not a military brat. I'm a ministry brat. I was raised in a Christian home. My dad's been in the ministry my whole life. And so uh, I've been all over the place. And being as that I've grown up in the ministry, my dad had me out going door-to-door soul winning with him, church follow-up, bus ministry, the whole nine yards. And I was like six years old. And so I have been doing this since I was like six years old. And I have engaged all kinds of people uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, I get one of three responses every time I have engaged people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have engaged thousands of people with the gospel. Here are the three responses that you find in Scripture with Christ and that I can also testify. And those of you here that have gone out soul winning, these are the three responses that you see. Uh, Here's what I wrote down. Some consider and then receive. Some consider and and then receive. You have those, they're going to listen to everything you say, right? And then they're going to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you have that crowd that consider and then reject. They listen to everything you say, they weigh it like a judge does a court case, and then they reject it. They reject it. The third crowd I wrote down 
Well, obviously you have those that uh, just won't listen. I guess that would be a, another crowd. But the third crowd I wrote down here is some just refuse to consider and then become angry and even violent. Some refuse to consider and then become angry and even violent. I think about uh, one time I was knocking doors in the neighborhood and uh, the lady opened the door and I said, Hi, I'm from whatever church I happen to be from at the time. And I just wanted to, uh, uh, to chat with you for a few minutes. And she said, You're from the bleepity bleep Baptist church? And I said, um, well, I'm from such and such Baptist church. She said, look, I've got Rottweilers behind this door. You've got about 15 feet to that fence. And I've got, you've got about five seconds to get out that fence before I let these Rottweilers loose. And I said, are you serious? She said, I'm not kidding. I'm counting now. And I was like 15, 16 years old. We took off and ran from the fence. About the time that I shut the, the latch to the gate, the Rottweilers hit the fence just like that. I was uh, out running a teen soul winning um, uh, uh, time with uh, a church in uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland, and I was in charge. Of, I took 35 to 40 teenagers out soul winning every Wednesday afternoon, and a couple of teenagers were knocking on the door, and the same thing, the guy let the dogs loose on them, and, and they were they were attack-type dogs, not your typical pet dogs, and the, the two boys actually jumped over the fence. They were so scared. Happened right in front of me, and you have people that uh, they refuse, but they don't just refuse. They refuse and are not nice about it. I've been cussed at. I've had doors slammed in my face. And listen, you say, does that detour you? Nope. Nope. I am not going to be judged by God one day for how people respond. I'm going to be judged by God one day on what I did with my part. And how faithful I was to engage others. We find here in the book of John that from John 3 through at least John chapter 7, Jesus engages several different types of people. And each type of person um, handled this a little bit different. Uh, some of them did consider and receive. Some of them would consider and reject. And some of them would just become flat out nasty about it. You know why Jesus ultimately was nailed to a cross? Because Jesus presented the truth and there was a religious crowd that rejected it and nailed him to a cross. Jesus was crucified because he engaged. But Jesus has also turned the world upside down because he engaged. Jesus has saved your soul because he was willing to engage. Last or rather two weeks ago, we looked at John 3. We talked about how Jesus engaged the scholar. Uh, this week, we're going to look in John 4, the woman at the well, how Jesus engages the sinner. And when I say sinner, listen, everyone in the Bible, every human that's ever lived except Jesus is a sinner, but this lady knew she was a sinner. John 5, Jesus engages the man who is laying by the pool of Bethesda. He engages the sick. Uh, John 6, he engages the skeptics. And in John 7, he engages the scorners or the Pharisees. And so uh, Jesus gave out the truth everywhere he went. Some people were offended by it. Well, others welcomed it, but the message remained the same. Let me just ask this morning, I'm curious to know this, how many of you, the first time you heard of the gospel, now you've come around since, but the first time you heard of the gospel, you were at least mildly offended by what you heard. Anybody here that way? Would you raise your hand? You were at least mildly offended by what you heard. Hold them up there for me. I want to see your hands here this morning. You were mildly offended by what you heard. You know why? Because when you're living in darkness and someone turns on the light... You're living in a dark, dirty room and someone turns on the light, you don't want to see the dirt, do you? That truth hits. And I ask you this morning outright, up front, everybody in the room, here's what I want to ask you is, how much do you love truth? How much do you love truth? 
You see, I could stand up here and preach truth in a nasty way, and if you love truth, it doesn't matter. I can stand up here and preach truth in a nice, nice way. If you love truth, it doesn't matter. The point is that you need to find truth and you need to embrace truth. And so, uh, when the pastor preaches something and you don't like it, if it's truth, it's truth. Right? Is that correct? And so we ought to be on a pursuit for truth. Jesus was too busy giving out truth to worry about what other people thought. And yes, some people were offended by the truth, but he just kept giving out the truth and kept giving out the truth. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to this woman that Jesus met at Sychar's well in Samaria. She was filled with sin and was living an iniquitous lifestyle. Of all the people that accepted the message of Christ, she was as open and receptive as any one of them. I propose this morning uh, that the more beat up someone is by their sinful choices, the more readily receptive they are of the truth. I propose that if you and I will look at the world through the eyes of our Savior, we would see many, many people broken by sin and looking for a Savior. Let me ask you a question this morning. You walk around town, Stratford, Shelton, Bridgeport, Milford, the greater area, Ansonia, Seymour, Beacon Falls, New Haven. What do you see? You see buildings? You see sopping shops and, and shop rights and Burger Kings and McDonald's, Subway. You see, uh, you see um, uh, houses, cute decorations. Maybe some of you see tag sales, right? You see all the signs, tag sale this way. What do you see? You know what God wants you to see? Souls. Souls. He wants you to see people that have an eternal soul. He wants you to engage them. You know what I see when I walk around the area? And I wish I could say I was better at this. I'm not perfect at it. I have room for improvement like we all do, but... When I walk around and I'm in the right frame of mind, I'll tell you what I see. I see that we live in a very sinful era. Sin is more obvious and rampant and open than it's ever been. You guys agree with that? You know what I also see is I see that sin is, is running its course quicker in people's life. I see a bunch of broken people. And a broken person is a person who's open to healing. And so when you see people, don't, don't throw down your pharisaical look at them. No, run alongside of them and love on them. We're going to look at four principal thoughts this morning out of John 4 as we consider Christ's example here of engaging this sinner, this woman at the well. Number one, notice the path that Christ chose, the path Christ chose. Look, that, look back with me at John chapter 4 and look at verse number 3. The Bible says there, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Notice this, verse 4, And he must needs go through Samaria. So let me help you visualize this. I wasn't able to quite get it up on the screen. Pastor Dave left town before uh, we got it up there, but that's okay. Uh, picture this with me in your mind. you got Galilee up here in the northern part of the country of Israel during Jesus' time. you got Jerusalem down here uh, south of Galilee, 
toward the bottom of the country. And between Galilee, where Jesus spent the majority of His ministry, and Jerusalem, you have an area called Samaria. Okay, Picture it like a, a large city or maybe a state, a province. You have Samaria. Maybe the better way to picture it would be a county. Okay, And in Samaria lived the Samaritans. Now, if you walk up to someone who is a practicing Jew today, and you call them a Samaritan, you will offend them. The term Samaritan is highly offensive. You say, well, why? Well, just to kind of go back into that culture in that time, the uh, Jews, especially then, were very racist, exclusive people. You were either a Jew, or you were a, finish it with me, a Gentile dog. Gentile dog. Gentile scum. No, Gentile dog. They Look, either you are a Jew or you are a Gentile dog. How many Gentiles do we have in the room? If you're not a Jew, raise your hand. Amen? Uh, you, you, you and I, we were just a bunch of dogs to them. All right? They, they didn't like people from the outside. They wouldn't consider them. Uh, they wouldn't have anything to do with them. How bad was it? All right? Say you lived in Galilee and you were a Jew and you were going down to one of your many trips to Jerusalem. You would leave Galilee and you would go out of your way to go around Samaria. Now, if you went straight to Jerusalem, you would travel through Samaria. But instead, they would go over here to, I believe it was Decapolis, and then around Samaria and into uh, uh, Jerusalem. They would travel up and into a mountain range uh, where the topography was tough in order to get around Samaria. That was normal. They did that from the time they were birthed all the way up. You went around the mountain, you went around Samaria. Why? You didn't want to, you didn't want to support them economically. You didn't want to converse with them. You didn't want to have anything to do with them. What were the Samaritans? Who were the Samaritans? Well, a Samaritan was a half Jew, half Assyrian, or half Gentile. They were half breeds. They were half breeds. And the Jews looked at these half breeds, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. They shunned them. They rejected them. Jesus, um, leaves Jerusalem. And he's heading back toward Galilee. He's heading north back toward Galilee. And the way I picture this is that maybe there was a fork in the road and a sign there that said uh, so many kilometers or miles to Samaria this way and so many kilometers and miles to the Decapolis this way. And so what did the disciples do is they started walking the normal path away from Samaria and they look over and there's Jesus walking down the path to Samaria. They're like, hey, whoa, wait a minute, where are you going? Verse 4 says that He must needs go through Samaria. Jesus looked at uh, the Samaritans as having a soul. A soul. Let me just say this morning that it does not matter what your ethnic background is. Your soul is valued by God. It does not matter what your social status is or your wealth status is. Your soul is valued by God. It does not matter uh, uh, what home you grew up in. It doesn't matter what you're addicted to. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what your personal hygiene habits are. It doesn't matter what your IQ is or your social quotient is. God loves you just the same. Now, if God loves everyone the same, why can't you love everyone the same? Why can't you love everyone the same? Now, why do Baptist Church is a church that's very ethnically diverse, and I'm thankful for that. And I've got to say that as a pastor, I am even somewhat proud of that. Not proud in a sinful way, but I am thankful that our church, people from all colors and creeds and cultures, feel welcomed in our church. And listen, that's, that's just biblical. Jesus heads up to Samaria, and I'm sure His disciples probably held their nose at the prospect of walking through. But this was 
the path that Christ chose. I got to say that in my uh, my years of engaging others with the gospel, it's no problem sitting next to a person who knows how to wear their suit and tie and knows how to match their subjects and their verbs and sitting down and having an intellectual conversation about the gospel. Can I tell you that there not now, but there have been times in my past where if a guy had alcohol in his breath and it looked like he hadn't had a shower in a week, that I didn't want to go talk to him. Can I tell you that the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus loves everybody the same. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews, but Jesus loved the Samaritans. Number two, notice the person Christ encountered. The person Christ encountered. So they get there. They get into, into Samaria and they come to a place called Sychar's Well. This was a well that had been dug by Jacob. And Jesus is tired and so he collapses there. Look down with me at uh, uh, verse 6. We see first letter A, her surprise. Look at verse 6 with me there of John 4. Uh, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour around noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, this woman was shocked. Okay, First she was shocked that she was not the only one there. More about that in a little bit. But here, there is a Jewish male sitting on the well. Probably a, a large well, and many people could probably stand around it. And so she goes to the other side of the well, and she's just expecting this Jewish male to ignore her as a Samaritan woman, and he doesn't. He begins to talk to her. She's shocked. She's totally taken aback by it. You say, well, why would that, why would she be surprised? Look, uh, let's say here that we have, uh, my wife's from Peru, I'm from the U.S., and uh, when I walked up to my wife and, and said, hello, for the first time, uh, she wasn't shocked, alright? Yes, she was a woman from another country, and, and but there wasn't that racial tension, if you will, like there was here. Uh, oftentimes, we don't understand it. Uh, we, we, we don't quite understand it the way that they would have. She was shocked that he even said hello to her. Now, why was she shocked? First, because he was a man and she was a woman. Back in the Bible times, uh, uh, not because God wanted it this way, but back in the Bible times, women were uh, treated as just an object to have a family and they were just kept in the house and that was their role. And i got to say, that that's not biblical. That's not, that's not God's intention. Christianity lifts up the role of the woman. Don't ever, ever let anybody tell you otherwise. The feminist crowd want to tell you that the Bible oppresses women and all that. It's just not true. Women are valued in Scripture. and Women are held in high esteem in Scripture. and Women are considered to be uh, uh, precious and, and wonderful and, and loved on in Scripture. And yes, women have a different role than men in Scripture, but both roles are significant. And both roles in the eyes of God are equal. Here, she's shocked because he, as a man, is talking to her as a woman. But she's also surprised because, as a Jew, he was talking to her as a Samaritan. But Jesus didn't care about her gender. Jesus didn't care about her ethnic background. Jesus cared about her soul. Let her be, we see, her sin. Her sin. Look down with me back at verse 6 of John chapter 4, will you? John chapter 4 in verse number 6, the Bible says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. Look at this next phrase. 
and it was about the sixth hour. It was about the sixth hour. Now, uh, uh, Israel was under Roman rule, and so we go back to the Roman clock. That would have put this at noon, noon, our time. Now, you don't go in the heat of the day to draw water into a pot and carry it back in. How many of you here are smart enough to know if you've got to cut your grass, you either do it early in the morning or you do it late in the evening? How many of you get that? Okay, You don't do it at high noon when the sun's beating down on you. Now, if you own a landscaping company, I guess you don't have a choice with some of the lawns. But if you're cutting your own lawn, it's either early in the morning or late in the evening. So we're left to wonder, why did this woman come at noon to draw water? We'll see in a few minutes the sins that she struggled with. And probably, my guess, and this is somewhat speculatory to be open about it, but my guess is that maybe she didn't feel welcome to come early in the morning when all the other women were there. She was different than the rest. She had become uh, the talk of the town and not in a positive way. So she went when she thought no one would be at the well to try to avoid everyone else. And she drew her water. And to her surprise, there was a man there who was a Jew who wanted to have a conversation with her. What was the conversation about? Well, it became about her sin. Her sin. Look down at verse number 16. The Bible says there, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come come hither. Verse 17, The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. Now, we live in a day where people are pretty promiscuous with the way they live. And I've got to tell you, I'm old-fashioned because the Bible is an old-fashioned book. And truth is old-fashioned because truth doesn't get invented by the culture. Uh, truth doesn't shift with the popularity of culture. Truth is just truth. And we talked about in the beginning how you need to embrace truth even if it goes against who you are, Right? And so this might go against uh, uh, some that are here, some that are watching online, uh, but I'm, I'm bound by the truth, and I am to preach and teach the truth. Uh, listen, uh, premarital sex is a sin, okay? And you're not going to hear that in too many pulpits in America today, but premarital sex is a sin. Um, the Bible teaches that that's for the bedroom between a husband and a wife alone. You say, oh, but that, that was popular to believe 50 or 60 years ago. Again, if culture leaves the truth, I'm going to stick with the truth. Right? This woman had been married and divorced five times, and now she's living with a man that isn't her husband. The only way Jesus could have known that is if He was God. Now, Jesus confronts her on this, She's not offended by it. She's not offended by it. John chapter 6, John chapter 7, we find people who are much more spiritually aware than this woman was, but they weren't able to find salvation. And you might ask, well, why? Why does the woman at the well end up in a few moments in our sermon getting saved, but the people in John 6, John 7 who were religious couldn't get saved? The reason was because the religious crowd refused to accept their sin. Wouldn't accept their sin. Let me put it to you this way. You cannot be saved until you are first lost. 
right? If I jump into a, a, a lake and I want to swim from one end to the other, and it's a big, long lake, you can't save me until I am gasping for air and my legs are cramping. If I just started my swim and I'm confident I can make it across and you pull me out, you didn't save me from anything. You, 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 you stopped me from trying to accomplish a feat. Many people are trying to swim across the great gulf of their sin that eternality is caused or the, the, the gap in, of eternal life that they have. They think that somehow by living a good life, they can make it to heaven on their own. And my friend, you you cannot be saved from your sin until you realize that you're desperately lost. You say, but Pastor Lejeune, I try my best to live a good, cleaned up lifestyle and, and I do my best to, to, to take care of others and doesn't that matter? And I would say that you may think you're good, but in comparison to God, you're not so good. The other thing I would like to tell you is that being good does not erase your bad. You say, well, yes, it does. You know, I'm going to die one day, and God's going to put my goods on a scale here. He's going to put my bad on a scale over here, and if my goods outweigh my bad, then He's going to let me into heaven. Okay? Uh, that doesn't work anywhere else in life. Why would it work in heaven? Let's say I get pulled over this afternoon on Main Street Putney. And I tell the officer, I say, you can't give me a ticket. He says, well, you were speeding. I say, yeah, but I didn't speed the last 45 days I went down this road. That's got to count for something. You know what he's going to say to me? Great! How you what? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a pat on the chest. Good job, buddy. Way not to speed 45 days in a row. But you sped today. Pay the fine. You get to heaven and you say to God, But I did some good things! God's going to say, That's great. That doesn't cover your sin. You still have to pay the price for your sin. Let me just... Take that a step further as far as explaining that. Well, you ask, you might be sitting here today and you're wondering, well, what is the price of sin? The Bible tells us the soul that sinneth, not the flesh or the body, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. It shall die. What's that mean? You have a soul that is an eternal being. Your flesh will die. They'll have a funeral for you one day or a memorial service and, and, and people will move on. They'll maybe visit your remains for a time. They'll think of you, but your soul will continue to live in all of eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And the Bible explains that the soul that sinneth shall die. It shall be separated. It shall be punished. To just put it to you bluntly, because of my sin... I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to go to hell. You say, Pastor, you're just saying all kinds of things today that aren't politically correct. Look, it may not be politically correct, but it's biblically correct. And if we're after truth, then we'll set political correctness to the side. The bad news for every one of you here today is that because you're a sinner, you deserve to go to hell. And if that's where the story ended, it'd be pretty, be pretty morbid, wouldn't it? But it's not. It gets better from here. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Let me say here that you must first, though, accept your sin. You must accept that you are a sinner and that you do sin and that you cannot help but sin because of your Adamic fallen nature. Let her be her sin. Let me just say this morning to those of you here who are saved, which I believe is the large majority of you, you've made that step to trust Christ. 
You cannot shirk your responsibility in explaining sin to people when you're trying to tell them how to go to heaven. You can't just make it flowery and nice and just sidestep it. You've got to be blunt and forward with people. You are a sinner. You need to get them to admit that they are a sinner and that they have broken God's law. And you must take it a step further and explain that sin has eternal consequences in hell. Letter C, we see her, her sincerity. Her sincerity. Look down with me at John chapter 4, verse 19. Now, before we read it, Jesus uh, confronted this woman with her sinful lifestyle. Just called her out on it. I don't think he was mean about it, but just called her out on her sin. And she did not retaliate in an unkind way, but she did attempt to sidestep the question. She did attempt to sidestep the reality of it. And the way she attempted to sidestep it was she pointed at her own religion. Look at verse 19. The Bible says there, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You have perceived wisely, woman. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, that ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit uh, and in truth. Lost my spot there. Give me just a moment. Uh, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus goes on to tell her that He is the Messiah. This woman here, she throws her religion at Jesus. He says, you've been married five times and divorced, and now you're living with a guy that isn't your husband. You're living in sin. She says to her, yeah, but I... She basically says to him, yeah, but I'm religious. I'm religious. I go to church. I worship. I worship. Doesn't that count for something? Let me just say this to you this morning. When I die... God is not going to look at my denominational affiliation to decide whether or not I get into heaven. I've been a Baptist my whole life. I'm proud to be a Baptist. I have very distinct reasons why I will be a Baptist most likely till the day I die. I don't plan on leaving the Baptist movement anytime soon. And I do think that the Baptists have a whole lot of things right. That's why I am one. But God is not going to let me into heaven because I'm a Baptist. If your name's on the membership roll of this church, that's great. But that's not going to get you into heaven. You may be here today, you say, well, I grew up Methodist or Presbyterian or non-denominational, or I grew up in the Jehovah's Witness uh, movement, or I grew up in the Mormon movement, or uh, fill in the blank, a Buddhist, a, a, a Confucius, a Muhammad, whatever, uh, uh, whoever you call your spiritual leader. My friend, God is not going to let you into heaven because of some religious affiliation. He's not going to let you in because you're Catholic. Now look, I, I say that here, and this is a highly Catholic area. I believe... Probably 93%, if I, if I saw my demographics right, 93% of the city of Stratford claims to be Catholic. Look, being a Catholic's not going to get you to, into heaven any more than being a Baptist is. Uh, oftentimes when I'm out engaging people about the gospel, I'll ask them, do you know you're going to heaven someday? Do you know the most common answer I get around here? I'm Catholic. You know what I look back at them and say? So? What's that mean? You're Catholic. I'm Baptist. So what? Being Catholic never got anyone into heaven. You say, well, how does a person get to heaven? 
Very simply, they've got to accept their sin. They've got to see their need for a Savior. They've got to believe that Jesus Christ lived and He died on a cross. And on that cross, He became your sin. And He suffered the pain for your sin. In His death, He forgave your sin. In His resurrection, He bought you the gift of eternal life. He wants to give that to you. But it's not just... It's for everyone, but it's only for those who are willing to believe and accept it. Acts 16, verse 31 tells us that you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Letter D, we see her surrender. Her surrender. Look down with me at verse number 28 of John chapter 4. The Bible says, The woman then left her water pots. I believe that's symbolic. She left behind her past and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And they went out of the city and came unto him. This woman looked at the Messiah, the Christ. She believed in him for salvation. She set down her water pot and she ran into the city and she said, I have found the Christ. I have found the Savior. What was it today you walked in the door believing would take you to heaven? You believe that somehow you're going to live a life that's good enough for God to let you in? The Bible tells us in Revelation that those who are cast into hell are going to be judged by the works of their life. Did you hear the first part of that phrase? Those that are cast into hell are going to be judged by the works of their life. It's not going to do it for you, my friend. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, it says, that we're saved by grace through faith. It goes on to say, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works. Titus 3.5 tells us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy hath He saved us. Hath He saved us. You can't earn your way to heaven, but you can surrender your will. April 8, 1988, as a four-year-old boy, sitting on the pew in a Sunday evening service at Central Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I surrendered that day. What's that mean? I waved the white flag. I said to God, it's no longer my way to get to heaven. It's your way. It's your way. I'm not worried about my way. I'm worried about your way. What's the idea of surrendering? Now, in normal war, right, where you have two sides that are fighting each other civilly, one gets another one backed into a corner, And the other side will wave the white flag and you don't kill them, right? You take them captive. And what God wants you to do is wave the white flag and say, I surrender. I'm tired of fighting against your way. I'm willing to do it your way. Some of you here today, you you need to do that. You need to humble your heart. You need to say, God, I'm a sinner. And I'm not worthy of salvation, but I know you provide it for me free of charge. And I want to accept that, her surrender. Number three, we see the parallels Christ used, the parallels Christ used. And here we get into the, the um, uh, really the thrust of the way Jesus witnessed to her. Now, I, look, if you're here today and you're, you've signed up for our Soul Winners Club and you're taking that on Wednesday night, let me say how, how, how thankful I am that we have 21 uh, of you showed up last Wednesday to take that class. That shows that you have a desire to engage others in the gospel. Thank you for that. Uh, but um, uh, uh, let me just say this morning that you really need to watch the science of how Jesus witnessed. Don't, he, he, he didn't go through the same plan with everyone. He just took people where they were. Look at verse 7 of John chapter 4. It says there, and we're going to look at letter A, water that lives. It says there, Then 
cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith that thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldest have asked of him. And he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and the children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, What Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up in everlasting life. Jesus took the woman where she was. Watch this now. Watch this. Pay attention. He took the woman where she was and led her to where she needed to be. To our rookie soul winners in the room, our rookie soul warners in the room, those of you who want to go out and share the gospel with others, don't fall into the trap of saying, all right, Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8, 10, 13, all in about 30 seconds. All right, pray this prayer after me and be saved. We call that... In the Baptist world, we call that one, two, three, pray after me. <laughs> one, two, three, pray after me. Don't fall into that trap. Listen, he took her where she was and he led her where she needed to be. Another way of saying that was he persuaded her. Where was she? She was at a well. What was she doing? She was drawing up water, right? And he used that analogy, he used the parallel of her drawing out water to help explain to her that she needed a different type of water. A water that lives. A water that lives. The conversation went something like that. Jesus says to her, can you give me some water? I'm thirsty. She says, what are you doing talking to me? I'm a lowly Samaritan woman and you're a Jewish man. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God that was sitting right in front of you, and you knew what He was capable of, you would be asking Him for a drink. And she scratches her head and she looks at him and she says, Um, sir, I don't know if you lost your mind or not, but you don't have anything to draw water with. How are you going to give me any water? The well is deep and you've got nothing to draw it with. Are you greater than our, 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 our ancestor Jacob who dug the well? And he says to her, Listen, ma'am, you're talking about the water that's in that well. That water will quench your thirst temporarily. This morning in the service, a man sitting over here, right when I was talking about this, right on cue, I didn't ask him to, right on cue, uh, opened up a bottle of water and started drinking it. And I said to him, I said, I called him by name, I said, you're going to be thirsty in a couple hours again, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. You know, you can drink water all you want. You're just going to be thirsty. I'm thirsty right now. Be thirsty all you want. You know what? The water that Christ gives you in salvation, metaphorically, it takes away your thirst. The truth is, God has built everyone with something I like to call the God hole. The God hole. You all know what the God hole is? It's that part of your soul that can only be filled by God. That's the God hole. Now, we all have one, and everyone tries to fill it different ways. People try to fill it with money. Can I tell you that you never make enough money to fill the God hole? People try to fill it with drugs 
Oh, I've seen people try to fill it with a marijuana joint and a, and a, and a, and a line of, uh, of, uh, of cocaine or whatever it is they sniff up or inject, injecting something in their arm. People try to fill that God hole with alcoholism. People try to fill that God hole by coming in from the door from work and getting a beer out of the fridge and plopping down in the chair and turning on the TV and watching TV later, 9 o'clock at night. And, and, and they think somehow that they can fill the God hole with entertainment and uh, uh, via TV and then via music. And, and look, uh, the only way to fill the the God hole is to allow God to fill the God hole. That's it. You, you've got to accept Christ as your Savior. You've got to allow Him to come in and then you've got to begin to walk with Him. You read His Bible and you pray every day. What is that? That's water that springs up unto life eternal. If you're here today and you're trying to cram all kinds of things in the God hole and you're just finding that it doesn't work, let me encourage you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and if you're saved, let me encourage you to walk with your Savior. Letter B, we see here, again, talking about the parallels Christ used. Letter B, we see meat that lasts. Meat that lasts. Look down at verse 31. Before we read this, though, let me give you the backstory. The disciples coming into Samaria, you know what they saw? They saw restaurant number one. They walked a little further. They saw restaurant number two. And, you know, they're dropping the subtle hints of Jesus. Hey, you starting to get a little hungry? You know how it is when you go on a trip, right? Uh, it's about that time, isn't it? Oh, look at that, 12 o'clock. I am hungry. Hey, did you hear something? I just thought I heard somebody's stomach grumble. They're throwing out all the hints, and man, Jesus is, man, he's locked on that well because he knows who he's going to meet. They pass restaurant number one, restaurant number two, restaurant number three. Jesus gets to the well where he knows he's going to meet this woman, he's going to engage in the gospel, and he drops at the well, and the disciples say, look, you want to you sit here, that's fine. We're going to go back to restaurant number two. That one looked ideal. We're going to go there. And so they leave Jesus to go get something to eat. They went to go get a Big Mac or probably fish. They, they were more, you know, they're Jews. They ate things that were kosher, not Big Macs. Amen. Uh, so they go and they went and probably went and got some, some meat to eat. And when they come back, they, they find Jesus talking to this woman. And these dignified disciples were, oh, I can't believe he's talking to this woman. And, uh, and Jesus had some instructions for them, and he, he, he used their meat to make a larger point. Look at verse 31. In the meanwhile, uh, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore saith he, his disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Now flip over to John chapter 6, if you would, real quick. John chapter 6, verse 27. He says to them, look, I don't have time to eat your fish. I don't have time to eat whatever it is that you're eating. I have uh, another meal to eat that is metaphorically spiritual. Look at verse 27 of John 6. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. It endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. What is that meat? That meat is the person of Jesus. It is the work that Jesus has left us here to do. About a year ago, I preached a series of sermons about the sacrifices. Remember that out of Leviticus? One of the sacrifices we looked at was the meat offering which was a grain offering. In the New Testament, Jesus is that meat offering on the cross, His body being sacrificed for us. And here Jesus was saying, listen, you all have your eyes on the temporal. You have your eyes on the physical. I have my eyes on the eternal. 
You know, back when uh, they were walking past restaurant number one and restaurant number two and restaurant number three, you know what Jesus saw? He saw soul number one and soul number two and soul number three. Which brings me back to my introduction. As you're walking around town, do you see buildings and roads or do you see people and souls? Letter C, we see harvest that needs laborers. A harvest that needs laborers. Look down with me at verse number 35. I'm almost done here. Verse number 35, it says there, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. He that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit in life eternal. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I say, sent you to reap, that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye entered into their labors. What was Jesus saying here? Don't say that there's a time of harvest and that there's not a time of harvest. Typically, you reap for what? Four months? You draw in for four months out of the field? Jesus said, look out on the field. Look out on the field. It's white under harvest. Look out at all the people out there with a soul. They have on them, if you will, a ticking clock. Once that clock hits zero, when none of us know when our clock will hit zero, their souls are going to fall into hell for all of eternity unless someone steps up and engages them. You know, I live with this fear. I, I, I live with a nightmare of sorts. I live with the nightmare that when God judges the lost, one day the lost those who never did believe in Jesus for salvation, they're going to be judged by God in heaven. He's going to read for them the sins of their life, and then He's going to cast them into hell. I have this nightmare that I'm going to be sitting up in the grandstands. And some guy named Bob or Joe or Steve is going to be brought in front of God. And while God is reading the sins of his life, Steve or Bob or Joe is going to be looking around the crowd and he's going to find me. He's going to look at me in the eyes. And he's going to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I remember you. Yeah, we met one time. I remember you. You, you sat in that mechanic shop for an hour with me while our cars got repaired. You were too busy looking at your phone. You were too busy reading that magazine. You were too busy working on your laptop. To tell me about your Jesus? I was going through a divorce right then. I was going through a child who was sick. I was a broken man. I would have listened to the Gospel. I would have gotten saved. And as they drag him over to the edge of the pit of hell and they throw him down in there, tears begin to run down my cheeks because I didn't do my part to see Steve hear the Gospel because I was too concerned about Steve's response instead of my responsibility. It's our job to engage the sinners. I live with that nightmare. I live with the possibility of that nightmare in the back of my mind. Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white under harvest. They're white under harvest. You know, everywhere you go, that person that cuts you off in traffic, that person who's rude to you at Walmart, that person who's not nice to you at the grocery store, that person that is even polite to you along the way, they have an eternal soul. They need you to engage them in the gospel. Number four, we see the profession the Samaritans made. Now that word profession is an interesting word. You say, Pastor, why did you pick it? Did you pick it because it started with the letter P and it fits your outline? Can you throw that up there, Brother Matt? Next slide there. The profession 
that Christ made. Two more, one more. We've got to wake him up back there. There it is. The profession the Samaritan has made. Did you pick it because it started with a P and it fits your outline? Uh, partially. Partially. But not totally. That word profession actually states exactly what I want uh, to say here. That word profession by the dictionary means this, the declaration of belief in or acceptance of a religion or faith. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to profess the Christian faith before you leave today. How do you do that? You just bow your head and you believe on the only name uh, of the Son of God. You believe in Him and, and accept Him for, for your salvation. We see here that the Samaritans, plural, made professions in Christ. Letter A, letter A, notice her report to the lost. Her report to the lost. Verse 39 of John chapter 4 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I did. You know what this woman did? She set her water pot down. She said, I don't need the water pot. I got the living water. I don't need this temporary water. I got the living water. And she ran into the city. And she said, come and see a man that told me everything I've ever done. Is not this the Christ? And many people on the spot because of her testimony believe. How many here today remember the day you got saved? Did you raise your hand? You remember the day you got saved? Didn't that do something in your heart? Didn't that do something in your soul for this woman? She immediately had to run and tell everyone who would listen to her. She couldn't for, She couldn't stand to not to wait. She just took off and ran and she told everybody she could her report of the law. She engaged the sinners around her. She engaged them. She said, I don't care what you think of me. I already know you think bad of me because of the way I've lived my life, but Jesus has saved me. Her report of the lost, let her be the repentance of the Samaritans. The repentance of the Samaritans. Look down at verse number 40 of John chapter 4 and we'll be done. It says there, So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him uh, that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy sayings, we have heard him ourselves. Know that this indeed, that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. These people were so curious by this woman's message that they left the city and they came up and found Jesus and they sat at his feet and he shined the life of truth, light of truth in on their lives. And they said, yes, yes, we want truth. Yes, we believe. Then they sought for Jesus to stay. And he taught them and preached to them and discipled them for two additional days. Why? Why? Because of this woman's testimony. This woman's testimony. You say, oh pastor, it's just little old me. What can I do? What difference can I make? God uses the simple things to confound the wise. He uses the weak things to confound the mighty. What if that person who engaged you had shied away from that? Aren't you glad they didn't? Aren't you glad they didn't? I finished with this illustration and I'm done. I'm closing my Bible. Let's say that... Um, Let's say that I was a scientist and I was researching cancer and I found the cure to cancer. 
And I took this cure that would cure any cancer, from pancreatic cancer to lymph node cancer to Hodgkin's lymphoma and everything in between, breast cancer, all of it. Just the cure to all cancer. And I took my findings and I buried them in the ground. And I refused to tell anyone about it. Could you make an argument that the death of millions of people would lay at my feet? I think you could, couldn't you? All those children right now in a children's hospital that are dying with cancer. All those moms who are leaving their families behind because of cancer. All those people that die prematurely because the cancer bug has bit them. All of their deaths would lay squarely at my selfish feet. I don't have the cure to cancer. If I did, I would not keep it to myself. I wouldn't keep it to myself in fear that there would be scientists that would reject it. I wouldn't keep it to myself in fear that the millions and billions of dollars that are made every year in cancer research would be lost and the angry people that would be, uh, that would come and seek me out. I wouldn't care about that. I would just share the cure. Oh, there's going to be people who don't like your cure for sin. But I have found the healing balm for lost souls and how selfish I would be to keep it to myself. Oh, how selfish I would be to not engage those that need it. How bad must you hate someone to keep from them the truth of eternal life? Some of you here today, you may not know that truth. Some of this today has seemed odd to you. It has sounded uh, different to you. But something deep down inside of you is knocking on your heart's door saying, that preacher's right. You need to listen. You need to believe. Today, let that, let that day that you believe be today. Let it be right now. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this morning.